the cannabis industry is evolving at a radical pace, progressing toward the green peak. Each week, join Richard Zwicky, a cannabis visionary and entrepreneur, as he interviews experts from around the globe to discuss updates and evolutions in the world of cannabis. Let's make that climb together up the, the green, green peak. peak with your host, Richard Zwicky. Thank you for joining us today on The Green Peak. I'm Richard Zwicky, CEO and founder of Plana Global. And joining us today, we have Rob Hunt, who's the founding partner of Linnea Holdings. And uh, Linnea is a private equity firm that uh, has focused traditionally on the California cannabis firms, I think would be a general statement. But obviously, the experience that's gone uh, into companies in California is transferable to companies around the world and the thing, the challenges that every company faces and investors face and entrepreneurs face, they're the same worldwide. We each have our market unique uh, deficiencies and opportunities, but the fundamentals hold true. So the experience that a, market, a jurisdiction's gone through earlier is something everybody can learn from. And uh, welcome, Rob, and uh, thanks for joining us today on The Green Peak. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Rob, how long you've been working with cannabis firms as a uh, both as an well as an attorney, consultant, investor, and in some cases operator for about well well over a decade, approaching fifteen years, I believe. And uh, what led you into the industry? And you know, that's working as an investor and operator are, are uh, very strong distinctions. How have you how have you managed down that path? Sure. So initially, I came into the industry uh, soon after law school. I um, found myself moving to Colorado in 2008 or 2007, uh, right as the, the Colorado market was starting to get off the ground. And as it was, there there was a few pieces of legislation and a few pieces of litigation that really led the Colorado market to explode uh, in calendar year 2008. So essentially what had happened is there had been a cap on the number of patients that people were allowed to um, to grow on behalf of. That was an arbitrary cap imposed by the state that was removed in a, in a court case. And the second it was, collectives started popping up right and left. And at that time, I started having quite a few people that I knew that had been, you know, kind of on the quasi dark side of the industry, make the move saying, we'd like to open a dispensary or we'd like to open a commercial cultivation. You know, would you like to help us? Um, you know, is there anything you can do to, to assist? And initially, I was very reticent to, you know, want to do anything. I would put my professional licensure at risk, um, specifically, you know, based on federal illegality and the fact that I still was carrying, you know, north of six figures in student loan debt. So um, when I first entered, I did it uh, on the basis of, of helping people get their businesses off the ground from, you know, doing their filings of um, Secretary of State and, and um, you know, LLC filings, but found myself very quickly realizing that, you know, this industry in Colorado is about to explode. So um, very soon after that, started looking at where I could actually enter the industry without, you know, being all that worried about um, where I was doing it from. So I opened a hydroponics gardening supply store back in 2008 and then opened three more locations in Colorado and then three more locations in the Northeast for a total of seven stores across four states, uh, servicing large-scale commercial cultivators in Colorado, Maine, Massachusetts, and New Hampshire. So that I did that for you know seven years or so, and that was kind of my, my foray into the industry when I first you know came out. Oh, fantastic. And then how did that migrate into uh, California Focus, which has been your recent... Uh, area. Yep. 
So um, after I sold that business in 2013, I started what's now the largest private equity firm in cannabis, a company called Tuatar Capital back in 2014. Um, Tuatar took a very broad focus, a very kind of wide mandate, uh, wider than, than I really wanted to see. And so ultimately, you know, as uh, we went further along, I made the decision to migrate away from the, uh, the general partnership in favor of doing something. I thought that was you know, a, a more concentrated thesis. And I saw California as a really unique opportunity because the California market was undergoing a transformation from, you know, it was kind of a, a gray area or gray market um, through what was, you know, the old Prop 215 rules, which were the original medicinal rules written back in 1996, to um, a, a completely different regulatory scheme that was emerging post-2016. So I realized that there'd be a massive consolidation in the California market. There'd be a lot of people that didn't make the transition from, you know, the old market to the new, and that it would offer just a tremendous amount of opportunity from an, an M&A perspective. So the new thesis was, you know, put together a pool of capital, but at the same time, put the pool of capital together, not just as a passive investor, but again, as an operator, where we go in and integrate businesses to become spokes around our, our sort of back office hub. And that was the thesis that, that drove Linnea. Right. And actually, that's a that's an excellent thesis and perspective. And it ties into something I was discussing on a previous show just recently which is some of the questions about uh, the rapport and partnership between the investor and the entrepreneur and bridging those gaps, but also how they develop. And, you know, in your experience, not just with Linnea, but with Tuatara, you would have had, you know, uh, dealt with a wide range of entrepreneurs. And what really made the ones that became successful stand out from the ones who struggled or didn't succeed in terms of attitude, in terms of perspective, in terms of how they dealt with the investors, not as a whole. Yeah, I mean, as a, a single word, you know, how would I categorize those that have been successful in the space and those, you know, against those that haven't? I'd say austerity would, would probably be the best thing. Um, those that have been, you know, financially prudent about how they built their businesses and really thought um, responsibly about the fact that this isn't, you know, this great land grab that everyone thinks it is, and the, the name of the game isn't just, you know, spend yourself into market share. But really thinking about you know how to holistically and organically grow a business, and how to do it in a way that um, that's uh, respectful of the capital you've been provided by your investors. So a lot of the times, what we were seeing were you know entrepreneurs that had these great ideas and thought you know they'd be able to make an immediate impact in the marketplace, but their goal to do so was to you know was to spend their way into success, which you know isn't a bad plan if you've got unlimited sources of capital behind you. But what you <laughs> saw is that you know. <laughs> Well, I mean, look, we, we, we see it happen with, you know, let's say Amazon, for instance, you know, Bezos yep. didn't turn a profit for years, but, you know, he had a path to profitability that, you know, anyone in the investment community and the VC community still looked at and said, you know, look, long term, you know, we, we still believe in this model and we'll continue to throw, you know, more money after it. Um, but, you know, that, that model had a, an addressable market of the world. The addressable market in cannabis is significantly smaller. And in fact, in every state you look at, it's only you know, as large as the state is that you're in. You know, for Canada, for you guys, it's, you know, it, it is the whole country. But again, that's a finite market of 35 million people. And so yeah, it's from a tiny you know, my perspective, Canada, it, it, right. it is. It, and it, it, there's a lot of companies it, with huge valuations and company that raised, companies that raised a lot of capital to develop against a small market in the industry. But that was really towards what happens as the world opens up. And I think in the U.S., some of the investment has been focused around what happens the federal laws change. Sure. And, and, you know, that's the million dollar question that I'm asked all the time is, you know, what, what 
how does your um, your investment thesis migrate with the changes in federal legalization? And, and the simple answer is, you know, even if federal legalization were to happen tomorrow, which it most certainly will not, um, because we've had 34 U.S. states open up their their markets internally, and then um, gone through the process of regulating those uh, the operators within those states. The chances of immediately, like even with federal legalization, allowing for um, product to move across between states uh, is pretty much nil in the short term. It, it's going to be a fair amount of litigation because, you know, let's take California, for instance, where we know we can grow cannabis at a significantly lower cost than you can in, let's say, you know, Illinois, um, just based on climate, based on, you know, everything else that, that you need to, to grow a good crop. There's a reason the Central Valley of California is, is where, you know, all vegetables are produced in the U.S. Um, it, it's the the best climate. It's low cost labor by comparison. So there's a lot of a lot of reasons to you know to think California is it. So if all of a sudden you're gonna go out and flood Illinois market with you know low cost cannabis, well the Illinois operators aren't gonna like that very much. And you know Governor Pritzker out there isn't gonna like it very much. Um, and all the tax revenue they're hoping to derive from you know the excise tax coming out of the, the cultivators and the um, and the uh, extractors is now going to inure to the benefit of the person that actually created it in California. So from like a commerce clause perspective, you have to think that even with federal legalization, it's not going to be overnight that you start moving between states. So really, you're trapped in the market that you're in for, you know, give or take four or five years, I think, after federal legalization until these issues are decided through litigation um, based on commerce clause issues. That's a that's a really interesting topic to actually drive into a bit further when we come back from the break. Uh, we have to take a short break here. I'm with Richard Wiki with Rob Hunt from uh, Linnea Holdings. And when we come back, we'll talk about some of the protectionism issues that are going to rise over the next couple of years. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. Dazed and infused. Join sugar industry expert Latham Woodward for a happier hour each week for a lively and often hilarious discussion on the infusion of cannabis into food, beverages, and life. Explore exciting new culinary landscape trends with fascinating friends and guests who are leading the industry into the uncharted mainstream. Discover curated menus, enhanced cocktails, and live tastings. Life's a little sweeter here on Dazed and Infused. Elevate your every day with that Shuggies feeling, with the sweet taste of Shuggies. Add a cup of Shuggies to your morning coffee. Ah, how sweet it is. Shuggies infuses cannabis and cane sugar to make it the perfect sweetener with benefits. Make your happy hour happier with a dunk of Shuggies in your drink. Order your Shuggies now at s-h-o-o-g-i-e-s dot com or find it in dispensaries throughout California. Whenever you crave a little sweet, pick up Shuggies, the sweet, sweet, take-anywhere treat. Fetch your earbuds and stay tuned for some pure pet care conversation. Hi, it's Angela Ardolino with It's a Dog's Life, and I have Hernanda Umana joining me. We're just both so fascinated with how much we've learned since we've been in this pet industry and creating an all-natural product. Because it's a dog's life. I am a huge fan of my guest today, Dr. Bob Goldstein. I have, in my experience, not seen many natural substances produce the results that CBD is producing in the animals that we are testing on. It's a Dog's Life with Angela Ardolino, only on Cannabis Radio.
climbing our way up, up, up to the Cannabis Summit of Success. Cannabis Radio is back with more of the Green Peak. And we're back on the Green Peak today, joined by Rob Hunt, founder of Linnea Holdings. And just before the break, we were talking a bit about, well, a number of things. Um, you know, some companies trying to spend to success in addressable markets. But one really interesting topic that we haven't delved into uh, in any depth to date on the Green Peak is really the some of the threats from outside markets when the Fed opens up in the U.S. And that actually is not just a U.S.-centric topic. That's a global topic. As uh, markets open up uh, around the world, as, co- as countries legalize medical and then adult use or recreational, there's going to be different constructs of how it's handled. And there's been a lot of money invested in markets. You know, you mentioned Illinois and California and Canada and elsewhere developing industries. And, you know, there's a there's a challenge there. The uh, governments want to see their entrepreneurs and their businesses succeed and develop. But global markets always look from an economic perspective to drive to the lowest possible cost. And in Canada, we're seeing, you know, the the law was very explicit in terms of adult, adult use or recreational products have to be uh, developed in Canada and grown in Canada, where the law is silent on medical. And that gives a hint at the direction that, you know, the government needs to be mindful. Patients need medicine and shouldn't be restricted for access. And that's going to be a long-term trend. Uh, But of course, in the U.S., as markets open up state by state, there's a different philosophy on a state basis. And with the lack of a federal construct, there's there's a challenge. The opportunity, the investor, Rob, that you see uh, with regards to protectionism, do you think that's going to follow the Canadian path where the recreational markets might be protected on a state-by-state basis versus medical having a complete different path? Or do you think it's going to evolve in a very unique a new, unique way? If you had a crystal ball, what would you, what would you look to? Well, first, I would point to the fact that I think by the time federal legalization happens in the United States, the the fiction of you know the medical market will have largely gone gone away and people will ninety percent of what was consumed in the medical market in the U.S. is always recreational to begin with, and that's not to say that I don't believe in cannabinoids as being efficacious. I certainly do. You know I, I think that we will find cannabinoids being uh, instrumental in working for specific indications downstream, but I do think that a lot of those um, uh, forward thinking drug development is not going to occur in a cultivation facility, but rather in a laboratory. So. Mm-hmm. When you think about federal legalization, I, I think that um, federal legalization will largely be um, dealing with uh, adult use, recreational use, and I think that's going to evolve in a way that's you know somewhat analogous to the way the alcohol industry evolved, you know, post prohibition ending, where from a Tenth Amendment perspective or a federalism perspective, the states had you know somewhat um, you know home rule or, or uh, autonomy to create what they thought was the best program for their states, so long as it you know met, met with the, uh, the federal mandate. So, you know, obviously can't be any less restrictive than uh, than the federal program, but it certainly can be more restrictive depending on the state. So you think about the way, you know, alcohol distributors have, have evolved and how, you know, blue laws involved uh, in, in quite a few of, like, you know, the more conservative states. I think you'll see something, you know, rather similar happen in, in the United States on a state-by-state basis, which, you know, is, is a very simple way of saying it's going to be a very complex group of laws that, um will share some commonality, but they certainly won't be um, the same. So, you know, can you move product from state to state? We'll see. And then we'll see whether or not there's a source of uh, protectionist tariffs that go between the states. 
and again, a lot of this goes back to, you know, the, the Commerce Clause and the Constitution and a lot of case precedents have been set before, whether it was like, you know, the movement of milk across state lines or the aggregate effect test that, you know, went along with uh, with growing wheat. Um, but you will see you know, cases be settled on whether or not uh, someone else can reach into a, a state that has their own rec market or their own you know, market that's been developed with a finite number of licensees that have been granted an oligopoly in states like, you know, New York or Illinois or Connecticut. Um whether they want the foreign competition from from neighboring states or from states, you know, on the West Coast, so it's it's far from settled what's going to happen post legalization. Oh, I, I agree. It's very far from settled what'll happen. And uh, I look at even the act uh, bill that was in front of the House recently uh, with regards to moving the product from Schedule One to Schedule Three. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with you that everything medical is or you know is going to become uh, negligible. Uh, in the industry, maybe I misunderstood what you were saying there. I do agree that there's a lot of use that's being termed medical that is really recreational uh, in the market, and so I look at that as in part because doctors don't really have anything they can prescribe. Uh, you know, there's well, no more, more delivery systems right off the bat, or they it, don't have the documentation, the studies to say, right. "Here's how you use this product." Yeah, and more importantly, you don't have a person sitting with a in a pharmacy that can make a recommendation, you know, to you as well. So. You know, now when you exactly. go into a, a medical dispensary, you're, you're dealing with a, a person with no medical training whatsoever, trying to make a recommendation for an indication they can't even ask about based on HIPAA regulations. So, yeah. you know, my comments before on, on you know, sort of the, uh, the, the the fiction of medicinal, there will be a market that's going to be more nutraceutical in, um, in nature than it will be necessarily true medical, you know, from the standpoint of Western medicine's uh, definition of having to go through clinicals and double blind placebos and all the rest of the things that are required to, to go through FDA um, processes. But you will have, you know, people that would rather use cannabis, you know, to help them sleep than to use Ambien, you know, the way you've got melatonin mm -hmm. now. There'll, there'll, there'll be quite a few things that from like a nutricide, I think, you know, they'll say, hey, the benefit that I find is better, you know, better used with a combination of cannabinoids that I can get in the tincture or get in the salve or in a sublingual or trans rather than, you know, um, using a pharmaceutical product. So on that side, I, I think you will have, you know, people that definitely derive benefit. But the vast majority of people that are using cannabis in the United States are, are doing it because they like to get high. Just, you know, putting out there realistically, and I'm not always oh. the most popular person to say that. <laughs> no, there's there's absolutely, uh, you know, that's a very obvious pathway. A lot of people, and that's where I say, you know, people use it as a, a cover term. But I also know, I was reading just uh, the other day, like GW Pharma in Europe has 50 different studies going right now around specific conditions and the application mm -hmm. so that they can give doctors advice on how to prescribe cannabis. And, you know, they have their own molecule and they have a couple of others they're bringing. But that research is coming, whether it's, you know, but it's, there's always going to be the, uh, for the near term, there's going to be a lot of people who, you know, especially in the way the market is structured in the US, yeah, they're calling it medical, but they're really, as you say, they're, they're going out to, uh, not for medical reasons. But I, I do think there's a big bifurcation in the market. And uh, mm -hmm. there are some very blurred lines between the uh, between the two, and you know perhaps it, it, because I deal it, with. Go ahead. I was going to say agreed, but I think there's going to be as we get further along, that blur is going to become um, less blurry, and I think you're going to see a bright line distinction between the two different sides, and I think the FDA oh, is going to require it. Absolutely agree, absolutely agree, and we we see that internationally, right? We uh, myself we deal in. Uh, 
we we produce medical cannabis uh, as a raw ingredient as a B2B supplier, but we see that the customers, mm -hmm. the international trade is medical only, and it has to meet the medical standards of the, the country that's importing. And right. so it can't end up in the recreational channels. Um, right. Under its, yeah, you know, diversion. Path and yep. Diversion is a serious crime. It is, that, exactly, as it should be. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, that difference, you know, exists around the world that doesn't exist within the states because of the really odd, odd nature of the U.S. framework. And do you see that? Do you see that changing? With uh, do you see the U.S. coming into line with how the rest of the world is dealing with it? Do you think that the rest of the world is going to be forced down a different path by the the sheer will of the U.S. and how it's looking at uh, addressing it? Yeah, I mean, from the perspective, do I think the sheer will of the U.S. is, is driven drug policy in general? I mean, if you look at the single convention on narcotics drugs, it's been around for years. The U.S. essentially strong-armed almost every country in the world to, to you know, uh, stand behind. They've already done that. Um, now, I think a lot of the countries that are out there are starting to realize that they don't, you know, they no longer have to follow the lead of the U.S. on the single convention simply because the U.S. has already taken the step of, of allowing states to legalize. And now they're saying, you know, what a hypocritical position that you've taken towards us and, and our policy. So you're already watching a lot of the European countries migrate now towards trying to open up some sort of a medical um, a cannabis program. Um, the LATAM countries are starting to do it as well. Uh, you're even starting to see some movement in Southeast Asia. So do I think that, you know, the U.S. is going to start dictating a drug policy, like, you know, from the perspective of what's going to happen in the General Assembly of the U.N.? I, I, I think they have that, um, that ability anymore. Um, but do I think the U.S. will then embrace what other countries are doing? No, I, I think in the near term, the uh, the states will certainly um, continue forward. Uh, I think it's going to be at least you know five more years before we see a wholesale overhaul of federal policy, and that's largely not going to be driven by a change in let's say the executive branch or the or the legislative branch, but probably more just realistically driven by the fact that in the next several years you're going to see large population states that move the political needle, such as New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Florida, move to an adult use program on the heels of big states like Michigan, California, and Illinois. So once you have, you know, states where their their governor's mansions and their state houses, you know, dictate a fair amount of policy in DC, that that ultimately moves the needle. And uh and the other thing that moves the needle is the um the addiction to tax revenue. You know, once you actually think that these states are, are seeing, you know, a meaningful number, call it, you know, one third of one percent of the state budget uh, being derived by you know, excise tax and other taxes derived from cannabis, then all of a sudden, you know, once that's being um, allocated into a budget and being counted on to stay in that budget, uh, you're not going to want to see a state house think that they might lose that. So that's that's really when the pressure is put on, and that's you know when when you start to see a major change happen at the federal level. But it doesn't happen when states like Colorado or Vermont pass it. it literally, Absolutely. nobody cares in DC. Absolutely, and let's actually come back. That's a really good topic to come back to in the uh, final section of today's segment. We have to take a break right now, but uh, we'll be back to discuss that further with Rob Hunt from uh, Linnea Holdings. The Green Peak will climb back into your podcast player after we play some messages from our sponsors. 
It's time to Hemp Resent. I am going to titillate your audio orifices with weekly radio rendezvous with some of the premier movers, shakers, and history makers of the cannabis community. Radio resident Hempo Sapien Vivian McPeak. I will be putting out a call to action on the issues of the day and putting your interests under the big lights as I provide cannabis commentary and weekly interviews that go straight for the nugular. Marijuana! Hemp Resents, only on Cannabis Radio. Hey, take a look at this. They're selling smart pots. They have pot that can make you smart? Where is it? Not that kind of pot. Smart pots are the best aeration container to grow your plants. Check this out. This is the original fabric container for faster producing healthier plants. They're made with a superior fabric that delivers high yields. Plus, smart pots are reusable and sustainable, so you can use them over and over again, no matter if you use them indoor or outdoor. That's very smart, but how good are they for the environment? Smart pots are BPA-free and lead-free, so you'll always be able to ensure a pure, clean grow, and they're 100% made in the U.S. Over 28 million smart pots have already been sold, so it seems like a smart investment. Look for smart pots in close to 2,000 garden centers throughout North America and ask for the original fabric container. Find a store near you or order yours online at smartpots.com. The cannabis industry is growing almost as fast as the cannabis and hemp being planted and harvested. Where, when, and how fast will the cannabis and hemp industries continue to climb? Who will be the people leading the charge into that promised land of profit? Let's pursue those answers and more with the Plant Profits. Welcome to another episode of Plant Profits. I am Bert Miller, your host. As you guys know, the purpose of this show is to introduce you to some of the most forward-thinking executives and companies in the cannabis industry. Plant Profits, only on CannabisRadio.com. Climbing our way up, up, up to the Cannabis Summit of Success. Cannabis Radio is back with more of the Green Peak. Welcome back. I'm Richard Zwicky with the Green Peak. And today, of course, we're with Rob Hunt, founding partner of Linnea Holdings. And Rob, we didn't spend a lot of time talking about California, but it's really going to be a bit of, it's, uh, I think you've termed a watershed year in 2020 with who will make it and who doesn't. And one of the things that set that up and set it up as a, a challenge for the market is I think there was about 5,500 applications that went in originally to for companies that wanted to produce medical cannabis under license or cannabis under license in California, only 500 licenses were granted, which meant a lot of the gray and black market. Uh, some of it migrated, but the leftovers still operated in parallel to the, the legal market. And that's caused uh, conniptions for many. But now in 2020, with the challenges everybody faced through the funding crises in 2019 in the space, how do you see companies making it, not making it? What's going to happen with those companies that have still operated or groups that have still operated on the side and haven't been paying into the system? Well, realistically, the uh, the California illicit market is pretty well entrenched. Um, I don't see that in the near term. It, it really goes anywhere. But what I do see happening is that it's almost impossible for that, you know, which is being produced in the illicit market, migrating its way into the California legal market because now they've closed any loopholes to allow um, illicit product to enter the, the, the bloodstream of the legal market. So what I mean by that is that you know, previously, if a grower was growing cannabis, 
they could still sell it to a, uh, a legal licensed dispensary. And that dispensary had a tab on the seed to sale state mandated um, uh, software system that until January 15th allowed them to do a, you know, sort of a one-time migration into the system. Well, that's now been eliminated uh, as of Jan 15, which means that you can only purchase from a legal supplier and a legal extractor or a legal distributor. If you're not state licensed, you know, you're shut out of the system. So if you're an illicit producer in California, two things happen. Either you're shipping out of state or you're still selling, you know, um, through kind of the, the traditional channels of, you know, dealers uh, uh, servicing their, their client base. But as far as walking into a storefront and, you know, buying illicit cannabis, uh, almost impossible at this point. Now the question is whether or not the consumer migrates to the stores um, because they think it's you know safer product, better selection, uh, and a more efficient marketplace. And, and the last point is the one that's you know we're, we're waiting to see what happens. You know, if you use as a, um, a comp set or an analogy, you know, prohibition in 1933 for alcohol when it ended. Um, it didn't mean that the, uh, the illicit market ended overnight. It wasn't like, you know, the Bronfman stopped running, you know, booze from Canada down here or, you know, the rum runners stopped coming from, you know, Jamaica and Cuba until there was a more efficient market that was created until liquor stores had better product, better selection and a, a commensurate price. So what we're seeing right now in California is really a pushback to the, uh, the legislature in, in Sacramento to say, you know, you can't tax us to death because if you do all you're, all you're doing by doing so is artificially keeping alive the market that you know, you're trying to get rid of. So it's going to take a fair amount of give and take to uh, to eliminate the uh, the illicit market, and then slowly, you know, kind of up the tax uh, rate back to where they want it to be. Once people have migrated away from you know the old channels, and so that's going to take three or four years, and it's also going to take uh, the nimbyism that that's happening right now at a municipal level to abate as well, because there just aren't enough touch points for the consumer to go to stores when 80% of the counties in California have made the determination they don't want uh, retail dispensaries in their county. So it's uh, it's real tough for the consumer to migrate to the legal market if there's no place from which they can purchase. Yeah, it's all. I mean, it's really uh, an impossible situation for the consumer, and the consumer is also faced with the question of, you know, economically, people tend to buy if it looks like the same product, they buy the cheaper one, and a lot of times that isn't the case in the government authorized locations because it's actually tested, it's actually clean, it does have an excise tax, but it goes through more a rigorous level resulting in a higher price a lot of the times and you know do you think how do you see consumers reacting you said five years you think do you think there's going to be a lot of resistance i i mean it's going to track very closely to what you're dealing with right now in british columbia i mean you're you're experiencing the same situation that california is so do you think about how well entrenched the uh, the british columbian illicit market was and for how long you know the hell's angels up there and you know the the um you know Gangsters down in Abbotsford were, were controlling the market. Um, yeah, you know that that doesn't change overnight. So you know, again, when you create a more efficient marketplace, then it does change. But it really takes the government realizing that this isn't a question of people saying, "Oh, I'm not going to do it because it's illegal." They've always been doing it when it was illegal. They've always had a market. You know, that market just doesn't go away with legality. It takes um, you know legality plus efficiency. So um, you know, you point to the Canadian experience and. I think that's a word of caution to every other jurisdiction. Canada, you know, the province of Ontario uh, had 24 stores at the end of the year for a population of 10 million people where the government identified 8,000 outlets to reach the population. So for 24 stores to service the population, it forced the black market to continue operating. And then a 10% excise tax on product 
meant that the product that was in those 24 stores was a lot more expensive by the time it reached the consumer than the product came through the black market. And the licensees were only allowed to distribute through those channels. So we saw inventories piling up, but the inventories were artificial. It was couldn't get to the consumer fast enough. And that sort of market constriction is so artificial and so damaging to the economy that is seeking to develop it it doesn't just affect the consumer it actually affect it affects every company that's in the supply chain right that's exactly right and that's exactly what california is dealing with right now it's i mean almost a parallel situation the only difference is we don't have the um the intervention of the provincial governments that you have up, up there um you know acting as kind of the no man or distributor in the process so what we do have down here is you know this fiction of legality in california where technically it's legal, but if municipalities can choose to opt out, then, you know, that's a, um, a backdoor um, uh, what's prohibition, I suppose. So if you look at Colorado as a, as a comp, you know, Colorado came out with, you know, a very robust long-term, you know, uh, cannabis consumer culture that's been going on for years there. But when they actually emerged with legality, they let free market capitalism work. They said, okay, you know, open up wherever you want. Towns, you know, very rarely would towns uh, say no to it. A couple of towns that we only want medicinal, we don't want adult use. But largely every municipality has a place where people can purchase. And along the front range, there's there's hundreds. There's now 500 stores in the state of Colorado with, you know, 5.8 million people or whatever the, the number is now. You know, compare that to California with, you know, 39 million people. And there's significantly less stores. And it's you know no surprise why California, where it's six times the population, is only doing two times the revenue. So it's um, something has to give. It, it, it has yeah. to change. California knows it has to change. Governor, Governor Newsom is well aware that something has to change. Now it's just a question of you know, making um, bureaucracy move faster, which, as you know, is a, you know, a bit of an oxymoron. Absolutely. So actually, Rob, we're unfortunately out of time because it's been a great discussion, but I think you're going to be speaking at the Capital Roundtable at the end of March in New York City for uh, you know, the private equity community who's looking to learn more. Uh, investors, qualified investors and entrepreneurs who are going to seek out your advice or uh, look at you know, ways of investing in the cannabis industry, how should they reach you? Uh, through Linnea Holdings or? Yeah, absolutely. Robert Linnea Holdings. Uh, dot com always works as my email address. Uh, the Linnea Holdings website is, is password protected, you know, as a traditional kind of private equity one. It's you know, unless you have a login and a password, you don't you don't get behind the the homepage. So the best way is just you know go directly to my um, directly to my uh, my email address. Um, and then uh, Shingle Hill is a website that's still up that I had as a market intelligence firm. You know, it's largely defunct, but you can certainly find my contact information through there as well. And that's shinglehill.com. So- so www.shinglehill.com. Great. Yes. Well, thank you for joining us today, Rob. I know our listeners are going to be uh, finding their content very valuable and the perspective is great. So thank you very much. And I'm Richard Zuckier of the Green Peaks signing off. We look forward to speaking with all of you again next week. The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.